All right. And we're back. Um, so uh, the, the stream was ended prematurely. I don't know why that happened. So I started a new stream here. It'll probably take some people to a um, little bit to come over and see the streams over here. We don't have anybody here yet. So uh, I think I'm just going to wait for some. Oh, here we go. Some people are already coming on over. Sorry about that, guys. The stream was ended prematurely. The screen was just black. I don't know why, um, but that's fixed now. All right. All right. Good deal. You hear me. All right. So you guys can start typing some questions in. Um, thank you guys for finding the, the stream. Uh, it just kind of the screen went black and then uh, I had to create a new stream, but we should be good. Um, if anybody... Uh, Okay, great. Yeah, James, our IT guy, is going to type the link for this new chat in the old chat for the one that, that died on us. All right. So Tachi, uh, that's my um, sister, sister-in-law's um, first name. That's cool. Thanks, Andrew, for doing these weekly. You're welcome, Tachi. Um uh, Damien says, uh, hi. Well, but first, before we get going, um, let's just make a little disclaimer. So I'm the co-founder of EventRight. Um, don't consider anything that I share with you today to be considered legal advice. Please consult the uh, services of an attorney if you're looking for legal advice. i got to say that disclaimer. The other thing that I always say on the top of these things is that we're going to be talking about licensing, which is basically renting your idea to a big company and receiving royalties. They do the manufacturing they use their workforce and they use their existing distribution. You don't need to start a company. You don't need to raise money. Sometimes people, oh, I need money. I need to raise money. And it's like, no, you don't when you're licensing because it's that big company's money, workforce, and existing distribution. They have a machine. Maybe they have 20, 50, 100 products. And when you plug your product in that machine, you're part of that machine. That's a good thing. Because um, most of you, you're, you're working a day job or you've got um, – a business that you're running, and you don't want to dump everything else you're doing. We've had a fair amount of students that have gone full-time, but you don't. You want to have royalties coming in from a couple of products before you go full-time. So let's just jump in and do some Q&A here. Uh, hi, Andrew. When a new product is being sent out to stores, are they purchased at the time by that particular store? Thank you so much. That's from Damien. Um, when a new product is being sent out to stores, are they purchased at that time by that store? Um, that's an interesting question. So when a manufacturer sells a product to, let's say, Walmart, um, yeah, they're, they're purchasing the product. Um, the terms can be different depending on the industry and depending on the companies. But um, when you receive royalties, you receive royalties on product that your manufacturer that you license to sells to retailers or distributors for right? Now, when you do a licensing agreement, that there are some caveats in there, you know, for returns, for different things, you know, like that. Um, and they make some allowances, but you need to be really careful when you're doing a licensing agreement when they say net. Well, how do you define net? What are you going to remove from what you pay me? Because it can get down to nothing. And I wouldn't say that companies are trying to get away with a lot, but I mean, Rarely is that set up that it's how we want it for our students. So quite often that is something we change. So I'm kind of, 
I don't really know what your question is, Damien, so I'm kind of like morphing into kind of a side note from your question. So when you license to a company, you need to define in the licensing contract very specifically how they're defining net and how you're getting paid. But yeah, if they sell a product, so that's what you're tracking. You're tracking what they sold and what they sold it for to retailers or distributors, because that's very trackable. You could audit their books if you had to. Um, I've never known one of our students have to do that, but we always insist there's an audit clause um, in all these contracts. So you're tracking on the wholesale price, the price your manufacturer you license to is selling to the retailer or distributor for, because that's very easy to track. Um, and then obviously, you know, your royalties could be reduced if they send, let's say the retailer orders 50,000 units and 5,000 units come back. Well, they didn't really sell those then, and that's reasonable not to get paid on those. Um, so just some things to, to get you guys thinking about how it's working for um, the companies and for um, the inventor. Um, we have this new program called Bridging the Gap where, you know, our students, they reach out directly to potential licensees, manufacturers that are in major retailers. Um, so, but we have this new program called Bridging the Gap. It's just for our students. It's completely private. And I just talked to another company today and these companies, they come on and they share with our students what we're looking for. They go, this is exactly what we're looking for. This is what we don't want. We want stuff in this category. And it's great. Our students are eating it up. I think we've already had two students um, uh, license products that way. And Dana, who's helping tremendously, um, she's a former student helping us get some of those speakers. Um, she, uh, we just got another one today. Um, and uh, just really working out very nicely. Great for the companies because you are their free research and development department. They only need to pay you if they like your product. If they don't, it didn't cost them anything. Great deal for them. Um, and when they're working directly with just InventRight students, our students, they're getting stuff at a higher level. Um, this, <laughs> I'm going to tell you guys a story. This, I'm not going to tell you who the company is, but this one company said, I, I was kind of probing to see like, do you get inventors that are sometimes unprofessional? Because our students are very professional. So I was trying to sell them coming on and talking to our students. So you could expect professionality coming from, or professionalism coming from our students. And he told me this story of this guy that actually showed up at the office. And he showed him the, he showed this company the product. And they didn't, they weren't really that interested. And the guy, the, the company just called the guy an inventor. And this guy didn't like the word inventor for some reason. Who knows? This guy was whacked. And he jumped up on the table in their office and started, you need to take me seriously and blah, blah. And he started ranting and raving. And the guy's like, okay. And he's like, okay, bye-bye. And then his mom, who was 80 years old, called. Apparently, the guy was still living at home. And he was like full-grown adult. Nothing wrong with that if you need to. But he's starting to see a profile here was yelling at him like profanities about how my son will never get out of the house if you don't help him and buy his ideas. And it's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> that's, that's about the weirdest story I've ever heard. But there are a lot of inventors out there that are very unprofessional. They make you guys look bad. And sometimes they close their doors because of things like that. Now, this particular company, one third of their products they license from inventors. So obviously he was able to look past that really weird situation. He said, you know, most people are really cool and they're really respectful. Some will like bug you every other day. Like, so did you look at it yet? Did you do that yet? And it's like, it drives you nuts. I said, you won't get that from our students. Um, 
our event rights students won't do that to you. They're trained not to. But it was just a funny story. I was like, I've heard some pretty wacky inventor stories, but that jumping up on the desk and yelling and screaming just because the guy called him an inventor instead of, uh, he's, he wanted to be called an innovator. So really? Okay. Um, and then his mom, eight-year-old mom called and started yelling profanities. <laughs> uh, but I just, the only reason why I tell that story is that um, some of these companies have had bad experiences. So the more professional you can be, the, the better. And don't be one of those. And um, I doubt you guys listening to me talk about how to license. There's probably, there's probably none of you, that, that type of person listening right now. You guys are really interested in doing the work. Um, uh, let's see, Caleb. Hi, Andrew. A major tool company will not accept my idea, but they are also sold through John Deere, who is idea friendly. Would this be an endless rabbit hole to try to reach the desired company. Oh, so the company is not selling, is not interested in your idea, but they are also sold through, their, their, the product is sold through John Deere, but it's not a John Deere product unless it's a private label John Deere product. Um, I don't think that's a complete rabbit hole. It's a little bit of a stretch, but if you, so if you approach John Deere and they really liked it and then John Deere showed it, to this companies whose company that product they sell. I think it's kind of weird that one manufacturer would sell another manufacturer's product that happens sometimes. But, and John Deere is now saying they're interested. I don't see any harm in that. I don't think that's a rabbit hole. Why not? Um, what I find is most people will spend more time thinking about things than doing things. So Caleb, why the hell not? What do you have to lose? Just be professional. Don't be that guy that jumps up on the table and has his mom call yelling profanities because they weren't interested in the product. And uh, and you'll be fine, man. So I don't see any harm in that. Um, I don't think it's a complete rabbit hole. It, You know, when you go down a rabbit hole is when you focus on, I mean, it's not the definition of a rabbit hole, but you focus on one thing and you just keep going down this rabbit hole and going everywhere and everywhere. But if you're doing a lot, if you're reaching out to a lot of different companies and you're just reaching out to John Deere and then they show interest, maybe they'll show it to this company that didn't show interest, that they're partnered with in some way, um, you'd be surprised that could work. I don't think that's a waste of your time at all, Caleb. I, I, would, I would go for it. Uh, Let's see. I see some of you are letting me know you can hear me because I always ask that up front. You're like, yeah, let's get that out of the way, Andrew. Let's get, 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 get you answering some questions here. So I like that because I love answering questions. So you guys start typing some more questions in. I know we probably lost some people because we had to switch the stream. Um, and James, our IT guy, put the link to this stream on the other stream. So, so sorry about the technical difficulty. Um, uh, Chris said, can you license the product you just created? Absolutely you can. I mean, technically, I'm not saying when our students are new, they can do this. But technically, when you understand the process, you could come up with an idea and you could study the marketplace, look at all the products in that space. And when you're doing that, you're not trying to verify, oh, that one sucks, that one sucks, that one sucks. Mine's better than all these, so I'm good. No, you want to go, okay, there's that and there's that and mine's like right in between here and really kind of acknowledge the other products in the same space as your product. So you could study the marketplace in a day, in four, four hours, let's say three hours if you're doing a good job. And then the next day you could 
write up your PPA. You could start a sell sheet. And then let's say one more day to make your sell sheet. Um, you know, if you've got a graphic designer can turn things around real quick, great. We, I really believe in inventors having graphic designers making it look beautiful, but you have to make the marketing right. Otherwise it will be a pretty piece of junk. Graphic designers quite often aren't marketers. They just make things look pretty. They don't know good marketing. Not, not all of them. Some graphic designers are great, but a lot of them aren't. So you need to know yourself. This is good marketing. And then they just make it pretty. So let's say another day to turn that around. If Let's say if you really had everything lined up. This is like not your first time out I'm talking about. And then on the fourth day, you could be pitching your idea. You've got your PPA. You've got your sell sheet. Study the marketplace. And you're showing it to companies. Now, you need to give yourself some time as well to make your hit list of companies. That can be kind of time consuming. That can take anywhere from two to 10 hours to do. So let's give yourself another day there. So let's say day five. Um, I'm not, we don't expect our students to do in this timeline. I don't expect you to do in this timeline. But once you really understand licensing and you have a really simple product, um, uh, Chris, Chris's question is, can you license the product you just created? So yes, you could just create that, do those things, and then five days later be pitching it to companies. Absolutely, you can, Chris. Um, or three weeks later or two months later, however long it takes you. But I think what I'm going to read into what Chris's question is as well is, do I need to prove there's a market? And the answer is absolutely you don't. Um, do some companies like that? Yeah, some companies do. But, you know, when you show them a cool idea, the sky's the limit in their mind. They're looking at it. They're in that industry. Let's say they're in kitchen. They know all the products in kitchen. They're looking at it. They're going with their gut. And they're going with what is in the marketplace, which you already studied and you did a sell sheet that's appropriate. So you're not showing them something that exists big time. And I see my fans like blowing this back and forth. It's kind of weird. It's making me dizzy. Um, but hopefully it's not making you dizzy. But uh, you've, you've made a sell sheet that reflects what you know to be in the marketplace too. And, you know, that you saying 100 people liked it on Facebook means nothing. It means less than nothing. It means you made a public disclosure you didn't need to make. Don't go showing it publicly. Um, if you sold 100 units, they'll be like, what, 100? Where they normally sell 100,000, not impressing anybody. Now, if you can have some, I'm not saying don't give feedback. If you can get people to um, sign on disclosure agreement and give a testimonial or say why they like the product um, or get some feedback, let's say it's a product uh, for dentists and you got a dentist or two to give you a testimonial. This makes total sense. I love this thing. Okay, I don't see any harm in that. But I'm reading into Chris's question, can you license the product you just created? The thought that you need to have sold a single one is not true. I would say 95% of our students have never sold a single unit and we get students licensing stuff all the time. So I'm just reading into your question what you may be thinking. If that's not what you're thinking, great. It's probably still a good answer and everybody's still benefited. Uh Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you, Jeff. We did, you know, somebody else noticed this. Actually, Stephen noticed this yesterday, our other co-founder. On your YouTube homepage, the video at the top says you're live taking questions on Wednesdays. It says it's a year old, just a heads up. Yeah, all the new videos say Monday. Um, and I think our other co-founder, Stephen, noticed that. I didn't notice that. Should have. Um, and I think James is, our IT guy, is uh, changing that for the website. So thank you, Jeff. That's I appreciate that. 
nothing worse than look, making things not clear, concise, um, very important for sell sheets and equally important for us too. So I should take my own advice there. Um, Jeff says, when researching a project you find, this is a different Jeff with a J, you find something that is tan tangential to the original idea that seems that it might be an easier row to hoe, should you stay the course or take the new track? Um, you should always go with what you think is the best path. So if you're, it's very, very normal to come up with something, start getting feedback from companies, or just before you're getting feedback companies, notice something else is out there and make an adjustment. If you feel like that's putting your best foot forward with the best product forward or the easier to implement product or the problem that's easier to understand, um, absolutely you should change it. Now, what you shouldn't do is if you're reaching out to 30 companies, you get interest from one company and they say something and go, oh, let's, I got to change this right away because they said this. No, if you think about it and you're like, because eh, because marketing managers at companies, they're people like you and me. They say things that don't make sense. I've heard a lot of things from marketing managers. A student tells me what the marketing manager told them. I'm like, that's not making any sense. You know, maybe get more information from them if they're willing to share with you, but it doesn't make any sense. Sometimes they just feel like they need to give you an answer and the answer doesn't make any sense. Now, if three companies or four companies all tell you the same thing, Oh, you got a problem. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Then you fix it. Maybe you rework your sell sheet and you resend all those companies that said no before. And you go, hey, my marketing wasn't clear or um, I, I make a, made a tweak to the product. I think you might be interested. Can you give it a 30 second look and you resend it to those companies? So a good percentage of inventing is done after you reach out to companies. Don't think like as soon as I start reaching out, that's it. That's that's stupid. You know, you need to be able to adjust and accommodate. And so I love that question, Jeff. Um, so you should stay the course, Jeff, if you believe the new the new version is not as good. Now, you could go the old course and if you believe it still makes the most sense. And then when that doesn't work, you could come back again with the new approach to all those same companies. Don't be like pitching like five variations of the same thing. Usually you just want to pitch one variation. And if they're two very different products, you got to pick one, you got to pick your best and show it. But then when they're not interested, you say, well, I have another version. If you could take a quick 30 second look at it, if it's appropriate for the same company. So um, let's see. Uh, Steve says, should I put my PPA in my LLC's name? That's up to you, Steve. I'm not really worried about it. Um, I've literally never had one of our students run into any issues with that. Um, when you do a licensing deal, it should always under be, be under an LLC or a corporation. People worry about that. And I go, don't worry about that. You can do that when you're in the midst of a deal. It's just one more thing for you to do. And again, this is not legal advice. Uh, one more thing for you to do. Uh, so if you can get the interest, move the deal along, it looks like you're closing a deal. If you tell a company, look, I want to do under an LLC or a corporation, they don't care. They just want the product. So if you're using a certain name before and now you want to do the deal under this name, that's fine. Um, same thing with the PPA. So, um, but if you already have an LLC, you already have it, Steve, 
I don't know, why not file a PPA under that LLC? I think that makes more sense if you already have it. But if you don't, it's never caused one of our, a single one of our students that I know of a problem. Um, so people worry about little stuff like this. And, and I don't mind answering these questions because it keeps you from moving forward. So anything that keeps you from moving forward, at InventRight, when we coach our students, we're all about taking roadblocks away, constantly taking these roadblocks away that are in the inventor's head. But then once you take a bunch of those away, you make a clear path for where they want to go. Um, because like when we coach our students, it's not the student asking endless list of questions to figure it out that way. It's the coach going, oh, I see your product. This is what you need to do. And then the students will have questions based in that context. But students will go off in these little tangents with things that are bothering them. And the coach or I, in this case, needs to answer them. Because if it's bothering you, when you have that uncertainty, you just won't move forward. So... Um, uh, Paul is our negotiation coach is asking me a question. Um, let me type to him. Uh, let's see, Talia. All right, so he was helping a student out. Um, let's see. Where did I leave off? Oh, Caleb said, Steve, I had the same question some time ago, and Andrew said it's not necessary for a PPA. Good luck. Okay. But if you have an LLC already, why not? You know, um, Alex says, I've got an idea for an improvement to a console, controller, Xbox, PlayStation, Switch. Are big companies like Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo receptive to licensing? Should I license to aftermarket companies? So, you know, there's a difference. Um, uh, there's a difference between you coming up with this concept for a video game and an improvement to the console, console itself. Alex is proposing a change to the video game console itself. I think that is more likely to, um, first of all, for you to get some intellectual property, maybe a patent um, or a provisional patent, of course, which is only 75 bucks, um, and then a video game concept. So every kid and their grandmother has this video game concept. Hey, I got this idea for a great game. And, you know, they've heard it a million times before. So that's really, really hard. Also, the companies you're mentioning are not going to be easy to license to by any means. Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo. These are what I call mega corporations. I could probably call mega corporations on two hands, you know, that are really big, like Microsoft, Apple, Sony, Nintendo. Um, very, very hard to do a deal with companies that size. Our students do deals with companies all the time that are really, really big and have distribution in major big box retailers, but they're not that big. So you're on. So there's a couple of things. You're, you, it's, it's a. I think it's a. Those types of companies are very difficult. I think you are doing better because you have a improvement to a console as opposed to a video game concept. It's like pitching a movie then, more or less. And there's there's going to be somebody that's got to do all that programming. You know, it's just like so involved. Um, I think you can get a PPA. Um, if you, Alex, if you said, Alex, I, if you said, Andrew, I have, um, kitchen gadget, a gardening tool and automotive product, I would say work on any of those before I'd work on a video console switch. Uh, 
typing to our negotiation coach. Um, let's see. So, um, yeah. So I, I, it's not my first pick, Alex. I wouldn't say it's my first pick. Um, you know, but if you really believe in it, you can get a provisional patent and you can pitch it to those companies. Um, Caleb, uh, keep in mind, like if you change an Xbox, wow. I mean, my, my daughter is turning nine in four days here and we got her a Nintendo um, little handheld console. And uh, I, I haven't played video games since I was a kid. I was into, I started out with Atari. So that was a long time ago. I'm an old man, but I did play video games when I was a kid. But um, it's just a lot involved there. For them to change the whole Nintendo Switch thing, like you, a whole new controller, a whole new this or that, it is like a massive change. That's like, so you're trying to make this massive, massive change. Maybe it's something inside or something that reduced costs or something like that. But Alex, that's not an easy one, man. That's not an easy one. I'm not saying don't work on it. Um, but I'm just saying it's not going to be as easy as other products. Um, let's see. Uh, Thoughtful Jones says, I have two companies reach, reach contact, reach and contact me back. One asked to sign an NDA and the other asked for a phone call and has said they are interested in getting more info. Well, that's great. When do I focus on one company? Um, uh, when the other ones fall off. So it's extremely normal for our students to get interest from multiple companies. I know when you're new to this, you're like, oh, I'll just be happy getting interest from one, Andrew. Move forward, Thoughtful Jones, that's your handle, with both of these companies as if the other one doesn't exist. Do not mention the other company. Do not pit them against each other. Stupid, 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 do not do that. Um, be very polite be very accommodating. I love that you're getting on the phone with one of them. If the other one wants you to sign their NDA, it's going to protect them. It's just saying, hey, whatever you share with us is probably not confidential. You filed your PPA. That's fine. So don't forget about that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, work with each of them as these, as if the, uh, this is what I tell all our students, as if the other doesn't exist and move forward. It's rare that you get to the final contract stages with multiple companies, but it's very normal to get interest multiple up front. And do not mention the other company. Even if they ask you, you're going to be tempted to do it because you're all excited. Because if you kiss and tell, they figure, well, you're going to kiss and tell that other competitor about them. And that's not professional. So do not do that. Um, so, but congratulations, got interest from two companies. That's fantastic. So good, good on you, man. Um, I'm assuming you're a guy, Thoughtful Jones. Either way, it doesn't matter. Um, Mill, Mill Hill is your handle. Can you PPA an idea in terms of literally just the idea, not the design, such as, as his or her cup with a lid and four straw holes? So first off, there is no design provisional patent application. So the provisional patent application is for a utility patent when what you're going to be citing in the provisional patent application or the utility patent later is the functionality of the product. So you, you can get a PPA on anything, Mill, anything, 
You know, I mean, the patent office didn't even look at it. So you can legally say patent pending. You could scribble on a piece of paper and send it to the patent office and legally say patent pending. You know, I mean, you want it to be representing what you're sending. So don't scribble on a piece of paper. It's just making a point there. But um, and so you want to highlight what fun new functionality this has. And when you write a PPA, it's very boring. Like when you do a marketing piece, you want it to be direct to the point and sell benefits and all that. But when you do a PPA, you're you're talking in like pretty boring terms and you're talking about the functionality. There's a hinge over here and it does that. And with this hinge, it's gonna make it easier to drink. You mentioned a, a cup with four straws, four straw holes, I'm probably using that as an example. So, um, you know, and what's the functionality of that? And you mentioned that and how it's new and how it works. And so your question was, can you get a PPA on an idea? So you're, you're never really patenting an idea. If you ask me, this is the way I like to explain it in layman terms. You're protecting pieces of it without those pieces, without that hinge, without the four holes, without this or that. It wouldn't operate the same. So you're protecting certain core functionality of the product. Um, you're not patenting an idea. You know, in effect, you're patenting the idea. If people can't do it five other ways, well, then you're protecting yourself. So, um, Mill, you, you can absolutely file a PPA on whatever the hell you want. They don't even look at it. Now, if you later file a utility patent, let's say you get interest from a company, they give you the money, you give that money to your attorney, and your attorney will then reference the provisional to preserve that filing date. Um, so when they when they do that, you're protected for whatever you put in that provisional from that date, but they can also put new stuff in there um, if you haven't made public disclosures. So, um, you know, I, I don't don't get too obsessed about the PPA. Um, one of my best pieces of advice with the provisional patent is include all the variations, workarounds, improvements. That's 80% of filing a good provisional patent including those other ways it could be done. Inventors, once they think of an idea, they go, this is what it is, this is what it is. Inventors are very creative, but you lose, I find a lot of inventors lose their creativity when they've been thinking about it for a while. They lose it, and then when they need to file their PPA, they need to think outside the box and go, well, this is the way I'm doing it, but how else could it be done? Let's protect those ways as well to keep other people from doing it those ways as well. Or maybe the company wants to do it one of those ways. So, um, think about the other ways it could be done as well. If you're so specific, if you say, this is a bad example, but it's a purple pencil, pig polka dots, exactly 2.5 millimeters in diameter. Well, if you make it 2.6 millimeters in diameter, you're toast. So you got to use some broad language as well as specific language. And again, none of this is legal advice. I'm just giving you a general idea how things work. Um, uh, Chris said, oh, thank you. I have a product uh, and my sell sheet. Never knew I could license it just assumed I had to sell to retailers. Yeah, Chris, you know, watch our YouTube show. Um, we've got 600 plus videos, explains what licensing is. I would say another a step up from that is our book, One Simple Idea, the yellow book. It's called One Simple Idea by my partner, Stephen Key. That explains our 10-step system. And then a step up from that is our coaching, where we coach you one-on-one -on -one through everything. But watch more of our YouTube show to realize you don't need to just make your product and sell it to retailers. You can license it to a manufacturer. They sell it to the retailer because retailers 
quite frankly, Chris, don't want to give you the time of day. You're a one SKU, one product company. They want to buy from a company they already have eight, 10 products from. They don't want to deal with you. You're not going to deliver on time. You're going to have all sorts of issues. They just don't want to talk to you. I admire people that fight tooth and nail to manufacture their own product with one product and get into a retailer. But then even when you get into the retailer, it's almost impossible to keep it in there for any period of time because they're going to start to favor these big manufacturers that are giving them discounts with multiple products and stuff. And you're there with that one product company. And just imagine the buyer at every retailer, if every product in their store, let's say 40,000, 50,000, 100,000 SKUs, you know, different products, everyone had a different vendor. They don't want to deal with that, nor could they. So um, when you license, to a really big manufacturer, you are that big manufacturer. And that big manufacturer, not only can they get it in these stores, but more importantly, they can keep it in the stores because they have a manufacturer's rep that's call, constantly calling up the buyer at that retailer and keeping it in there. Hey, we'll give you discounts to the others, keep this on the shelf. And you know, we want to put these new other products on the shelf and guess who they're kicking off the shelf when they put your new, pro- the new product on the shelf that you license to a big company, the little guy usually, or another big guy. But but when you license to a big company, you kind of are that big company. So that's what's really cool about that. Um, uh, James uh, said, I purchased Smart IP. That's our software to help you file a provisional. My invention is somewhat difficult to disclose. Does my application have to be perfect and contain no mistakes? Um, no. And I have, this is what I can say, Paul. Can't provide you legal advice, but what I can say is that in all these years we've been doing InventRight, I've never had a student that filed a provisional, didn't do a good enough job, and they end up getting screwed in one way or another. Oh, I didn't cover that, so therefore the company went and stole my idea. Like We've never had one of our students get knocked off to it by a company that they have presented to um, in, that I'm aware of in 21 years. So um, you know, in that case, if that hasn't happened, why would doing your provisional perfectly make a difference? You know, um, do you want to do a good job? Yes. Um, do you need to do a perfect? No. So, um, but do what I was just talking about, James, is think about all the variations, workarounds, improvements, throw those in there. It doesn't cost you anymore. Now, some people get obsessed with it and they put like 80 variations in there. I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's a good use of your time. But to throw in the, the, the ones that make sense, I think it's a good thing to do. So if you do that, I doubt you'll make a mistake. And then the software kind of guides you on the legal, more not legal, but the more wording side of things by giving you some examples and things. Um, Nick said, is there a formula for determining what your wholesale price should be? Um, there, The company is going to really determine that. Uh, but, you know, usually... Um, Usually, if you look at a, a similar product, let's say there's a fairly similar product and it's selling for $50, they probably made it for 10. This is a very gross, crude way of doing things, but it's usually a five time markup from cost to what it sells for at retail. So, um, quite often, if, if um, you know, uh, a, a manufacturer is selling it to a retailer for 25, that company, the retailer is probably trying to sell it for 50, but you and I all know that discounts abound. I was at, um, I was returning some stuff at Kohl's um, because from Amazon, now you can return stuff from Amazon at Kohl's and you go into Kohl's and just everything is discounted. 
discounted all the time. Like I bought a bunch of clothes and I bought, I think I bought this shirt. I bought this shirt and I just, um, and so there's no way to track wholesale. So when you get paid your royalty, you can track what they got paid from the retailer, but you couldn't possibly track retail. So um, I'm not, you know, what you want to do is you want to look at, will people pay that retail price? And I would say a more important question, Nick, is can you make it for a fifth or less of what the you expect the retail price to be? And you can look at similar products, kind of guess, like, well, it's kind of like that. Even if, if it's not the same product, it's about the same amount of plastic, this or that, maybe same industry, maybe not. And that's going for 1995. So I think mine would retail for about that as well. And then you divide by five, and that's probably more or less what that other company made that product for. Um, so these are just kind of crude ways. I'm not saying it applies to all industries all the time, but you don't need to like, you don't need to go to a potential licensee and have your wholesale price in hand. No, they're going to look at it and they're going to use their gut. And now, if you wanted to cite similar products just to show them, hey, this is doable, a reasonable price. That's something I always tell our students to do. Look, this is a little different than that, but there's this and this, and that's going for $19.95 and that's going for $24.95. And I think you can make it. I think that it will come in about that price too. So people are amazed that you can actually say that to companies. And so like if you go off and you go to China and you get all these quotes, and you're never going to get the same prices they're going to get. So be very careful about giving any manufacturing quotes you get because they're crap quotes compared to what this giant manufacturer is going to get. So I tell people to hold back on that and not think you need to get all these manufacturing quotes because whatever quotes you get, they're going to give you not nearly as good of a price as this big manufacturer is going to get. So let them do that. Get the interest. Let them let them get some quotes. You know. Now, when I say these things, it's not all the time, everywhere, in every scenario, but for the most part, it's true. So sometimes I get new students, but Andrew, I've been watching on YouTube. Now I'm a student and you said this. And I'm like, yeah, but in this case, that doesn't apply to your product. So don't think it's black and white. But as a rule, like when we kind of say things on our YouTube show, it's probably true like 80 to 90, 95% of the time for most cases. And that's what you guys need. You know, I mean, if you really want to know for your particular product, you need to be talking to a coach and they can confirm. No, no, for your product, that makes sense. No, nah, it doesn't quite. I wouldn't do it that way for your product. I'd do this. Um, that's, the I think, one of the big benefits of coaching. Um, Tachi said, I understand your PPA is valid for 12 months. How can I protect myself after this if one doesn't go to market within 12 months? Well, Tachi, you can, I, I cover this. And, you know, I don't know if I'm pronouncing your name right. So sorry to, to shy, actually. Um, I, I'm not sure. So pardon me. But I say this on almost every live Q&A. You can file that provisional again, providing you didn't make a public disclosure, put it up on a website, um, offer for sale at a swap meet. Those are some few examples of public disclosure. You could file that and get another 12 months. Now, you don't doesn't extend your original 12 months. It starts a new 12 months. But if you just showed it to 10 companies privately, um, you can do that. And I save inventors all the time from attorneys saying, well, you know, you're going to lose your priority date. You're going to lose your rights. And I'm like, okay, what are they trying to sell you? Oh, $10,000 patent. Hmm. Did they mention that you, did they ask you if you made a public disclosure? No. Did you make a public disclosure? No. Well, why don't you just file a provisional again for 75 bucks? You know, now to shy or however her name is pronounced, sorry for not pronouncing it right, but um, 
why are you taking 12 months? It should never take 12 months. You know, once you file your provisional, and I understand people file provisionals on their own. You can file another one. But if you file the provisional like the week before you're ready to start calling and LinkedIn messaging people, and then you start reaching out, our event rights students would never take 12 months on anything. It's taking 12 months because you're sitting there thinking about it and not doing, not really approaching companies. There are some very rare, difficult industry products that might linger beyond 12 months. Very, very rare. So, you know, I'm going to turn the tables back on you and say it should never take 12 months if you know what you're doing. Now, I know a lot of you guys are learning and you don't know what you're doing yet. So I'm not beating you up about that. That's fine. Um, but um, you should be able to accomplish finishing out a project, reaching out to 30 companies, 40 companies, 20 companies, however many you have in, in 12 months. And in which case that point's kind of mute, moot. But it does happen to a lot of our students because they filed a provisional before they came on board with us. Oh, my patents, my provisional is going to run in three months. I'm like, so what? File it again. And especially when you haven't shown it to anybody, that's definitely not public disclosure. So what happens is a lot of people file their provisional. They get the warm and fuzzies. They're protected. But then they sit on their hands because they don't know what to do or they're too lazy to do it or they just, you know, are stressed out, worried, or they're too busy or whatever reasons. There's a lot of legitimate reasons why people don't move forward, but definitely haven't disclosed to anybody. Don't ever let an attorney give you the impression, which I think some do by leaving things out. They don't lie, but they leave things out. That really pisses me off because um, most attorneys are decent, but they aren't all, trust me. Um, and, and, uh, and then get some inventor for 10 grand because they think they're going to lose their rights when they're not. I hate that. Um, so let's see. Uh, to shy, uh, you talk about students. Can you talk about your services and what it takes to be a student and what you get for that? So yeah, I'll keep it short because you guys don't want a sales pitch. So when you're doing our professional inventor one-on-one coaching program, you're talking to a coach every single week, um, live on Skype with video or on the phone, whatever you prefer. And then the next week they're, they're giving you what to do for your project. This is the right next thing to do. And they're working it out with you. And then they're checking it the next week. And then they're saying, okay, this and this is right, but you need to fix these things and then let's move on to the next step. And you just keep moving forward. And then you know any question a company can ask you, either our coach, your coach, or our negotiation coach, Paul, will have an answer. So we got your back. We're pushing you forward every week. Um, we expect our students to spend two to six hours a week every week. So when people call um, Sylvia or Dana or myself in sales and ask about the program, and they don't want to do any work. They just want somebody to do it for them. I go, you're not right for us. You know, you're just going to end up at these invention scam companies that say, we'll do it all for you. And then a year later, you got nothing to show for it. You know, and those, if, if you want to go to inventorfraud.com, you can learn more about how those companies work. We're asking you to do work. So what's required of a student is that the willingness to do the work. You don't need to dump everything else you're doing, but you need to do two to six hours a week. Includes a, a sell sheet, virtual prototype, includes um, our smart IP software to file a provisional, includes the coach every week and email them anytime. And then our negotiation coach, Paul, um, it's, it's pretty all encompassing. And it, and, and I would say if people shouldn't sign up, if they got just this one idea and they never want to do this again, if you just get one idea and you're like, yes, I would love to learn licensing. I understand you Andrew, as a side benefit, 
of working on this project or two while I'm with InventRight, because we don't limit you to one project. Now I'll know how to license the rest of my life. I, I always ask people to confirm that they're into that because then if they don't license that one product, they might license their second or third. And they're going to keep going because we've empowered them. We want them to say then, I get it, guys. I don't need you anymore. That's like the nicest thing. I've had students actually say that to me. And I do a double take. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I always say that. So I'm very proud when our students can say, I get it, guys. I don't need you anymore. So we're not just about making sure you do and say everything right with your project. We're empowering you so that you don't need us anymore. That's pretty unique. I think most people try to string you along for more billable hours. And that's what a consultant is. That's why people occasionally say, I want to do consulting with you guys. I go, don't, consultant's a dirty word to me. Don't, and it isn't for everybody, but we're your coach, your mentor, your teacher. We're not your consultant. Um, we're not going to do this all for you, but we're going to guide you through it or look at everything, make sure you're on the right path. So sorry for rambling, guys, but thank you for asking the question. Um, let's see. Crit, uh, da, da, da. Shy. Oh, okay. Uh, Shy's questions pronounced shy, so I finally got it. Um, let's do some questions from some other people. Uh, oh, okay. James Paul said, guess I'll wait till next week. <laughs> crying face to get my question answered. I've been skipped two weeks in a row. So James, Paul, so let's see if I skipped you, Paul. Okay, no, I answered your, Paul. Your question was about smart IP. I answered that in quite a bit of detail. So glad I took care of you, Paul. That's great. Um, Alex said, I'm pretty sure referring to the, the uh, video game controllers, aftermarket consoles are available. Uh, try doing some research to see if you can find some of the smaller companies that make unofficial controllers. Alex, great. You took the words out of my mouth. If if that other uh, inventor was a student of mine, that would have come up. Um, but I forgot to say that, and you've thought of it. So you're not always licensing to who you think you are, and Alex is making that point very, very well. He's saying there's a ton of companies making aftermarket controllers. Why not approach them? Absolutely right, Alex. And like I said, I think the controller thing is much better than a video game concept. Video game concepts almost like pitching a movie. That's just Hollywood flaky stuff. That's going to be very difficult. Um, so Alex, great advice. Go to the other aftermarket companies that make video game controllers too. You're, you're spot on. Um, Blurred Cube is their handle. How much more receptive are companies towards ideas that are disposable, consumable, versus ideas that are not. So I think companies are very open to um, doing deals that are disposable and consumable. Usually the volume there is insane for consumables and disposables. So usually they're bigger companies, so it's gonna be a harder deal to do. But if you do the deal, it's really ridiculously high royalties. So to summarize, it's a harder deal to do because they're bigger companies, there's more at stake. And, um, but if you can do the deal, it's pretty insane royalties. So um, are they open and receptive? I would say they're harder to get to. They are, but they're less likely to make a change because it might mean they need to change this machine and spend $200,000 just to get going. And there's all these unanswered questions with consumables and disposables. So um it's more difficult. We've had students do it. You can definitely do it. It's more um, it's more of a treasure chest project. It's going to be harder to close, but you're going to make a lot of money if you close it. So I think it's a good way of putting it. Um, 
uh, Adria, we have designed a wearable device that tracks hydration in real time. We have 250 users releasing the product in October this year. How hard is it to reach out to Garmin, Polar, Apple? We have a PCT. So, okay. Um, you must have a product and nobody should be publicly disclosing anything, which I don't think Adria is, um, anything on these chats, but it, my guess is it has to do with, um, tech like an iPhone or you, you mentioned Garmin, um, as well as you said, it's a wearable. So, um, wearables are, are, are hot, you know, um, the thing is a lot of these wearable companies are fairly new and they're kind of focused on their wearables. So if they're, if they've kind of hit the roof and you got to hit them at the right time, especially if it's these new companies that launch a wearable and like they just have one product or two products at the right point in time, they're looking for more, but sometimes they're so obsessed with making what their wearable workable. Um, that's tough. Now don't normally think of companies like Apple or, or Polar or Garmin as a wearable, but I can, I see the combination. I see how those two things come together. Um, here's why does it need to be Apple? You know, maybe again, going back to, I think it was Alex or somebody was saying like, why couldn't it be a, another provider of an application that would work? Why does it have to be Garmin? Why does it have to be integrated into a piece of hardware? Maybe it does. Um, but these are all just things you have a PCT, which is a, international placeholder, basically, for those of you who don't know what a PCT is. So Adria is, is pretty seriously committing to some money here, whether I don't know, if look, looking at the product, whether or not that's wise. Um, but, uh, you know, so what's your question here? How hard is it to reach out to the Garmin, Polar, and Apple? I would say Apple, like, good luck. Um, Garmin and Polar might be a little bit better, but the question is, are you even reaching out to the right companies without being your coach? I wouldn't be able to know. Um, our students quite often on most projects, they'll reach out to 20 or 30 companies, not two or three. Most inventors will go with two or three, just like you did. It's like a broken record. You got three right there. Um, some products, some projects, you know, there is only eight companies, or 12 companies. There's not the 20 or 30 like we like to see, or sometimes 40 or 50. And it is what it is. Um, but, you know, so, uh, Adria, I don't know if you, um, I don't, I can't say that much more without knowing what your product is. Um, but you've obviously invested pretty heavily by, if you've been filing a patent cooperation treaty, a PCT. Um, Dodds says, how do you know you've done enough prior art research for your product idea and what's the next step after prior art research? The product is a wood, woodworking tool and I already have a prototype. Um, you know, one of the things that we always say here at InventRight does is the most important thing is a market search, not a patent search. So when you guys come up with an idea, I would never, ever, ever do a patent search first because what is or isn't in the marketplace means a tremendous amount. What is or isn't patent, it just means somebody threw a bunch of money in an attorney. And a lot of times these patents are useless. Um, some intellectual property experts feel like up to 80% of patents are weak to useless. And that's that's a, 
uh, I think, a bit of an exaggeration. But if you do what I talked about earlier, if you think about the variations, workarounds, improvements, include that in your provisional patent in any future patent, then they can be very strong. Um, people have this perception, oh, my attorney will do it. No, your attorney is only as good as the information they give you. So um, what I'm saying, Dodds, is you need to be the one to do your market research first and figure out how it fits in the marketplace. You can figure out what your product is because your product may change based on what is or isn't in the marketplace. And um, you don't have to prove there's nothing like it exists. Sometimes there's a bunch of stuff kind of like it, but you have a variation. Some companies like that. Some companies like something that's really different. They're all different. Um, but then you're like, okay, this makes sense. Then you can do your prior art search, which a prior art search, most people think of that as a patent search. But prior art is actually anything that's ever been patented, anything that's ever been publicly disclosed in the history of the world. That's a true prior art search. So once you do a patent search, you'll never find it all. Um, I can't think of a case that I'm aware of where it bit one of our students in the butt. That's one of those things that people get obsessed about, but I haven't seen it bite one of our students in the butt. Um, so I do believe that inventors should do their own prior art research. If you're going to hire a patent searcher, I would always do it on your own. Find everything you can first and then give it to them. Also, a lot of these patent search companies are, are crap. They'll, they'll do a search for two hours. They'll take whatever limited information the inventor gives them. And it was the inventor's fault and they're not giving them enough information or too much information. They're not being specific on what they're looking for. And, and they'll go, oh, no, I couldn't find anything. And then the inventor will assume the coast is clear and it's not. Does that mean you want to get obsessed, spend 20 hours doing patent searching? No, because most of these patents are garbage. There's just a lot of patents that just don't make any sense. Sometimes people will see a similar picture, but then when you drill down into the claims, you realize, wow, they're protecting just that hook that hangs on a fence. I don't care about that. That's not going to bother me. But you're freaking out because you saw a picture that looked familiar to you. So really read through the claims to see what they're actually protecting. Don't just look at the pictures. And... Um, Another funky mistake that I see people make is they find a, what they think is a patent, but it's a pending patent. So when you file a patent, a full utility patent, not a provisional, that never goes public. But when you file a full utility, after 18 months, because it takes them sometimes years before the patent office gets back to you and has office actions, which is an argument, the way I like to explain is an argument between your attorney and, and the patent office examiner to see what kind of claims you're going to get. But after 18 months, quite often it might take two years, three years for the patent office to get back to you. Um, it goes public. So people will search to find these public applications after 18 months. It doesn't go public before then. And they'll see, oh, my God, this person got all this protection. But they're not looking to see this is not an issued patent. This is their dream list of what they want the patent office to give them. So make sure it's an issued patent. Don't make that mistake. I wouldn't want anybody to like not work on their invention because they think somebody has this rock solid patent. And it's just an application. And the patent office may only give them one claim out of their 10 that they're trying to get, you know. So, um, so yeah, market research, more important than patent searching. Am I saying not to do a patent search? No, I'm still saying do a patent search. But don't get obsessed about it. And it's, it's, it's very uncommonly an issue with our students. Very uncommon to be an issue. We find sometimes you can find a way around because I remember I said that a lot of these patents are junk. Well, if there's a junk patent and you can just go right around it, and then people freak out and they go, oh, but Andrew, then people can do that to me. It's like, no, because we're teaching you to make sure people can't get around it. And so, but if somebody else did a terrible job with their, their patent and it's not covered, well, it's not covered. It's fair game. So you're going to cover what they didn't cover. 
So realize that a lot of these patents are really terrible and the attorney doesn't care or the attorney just did what the inventor thinks. Like they asked him for more info. The inventor's like, no, it's your job. You do it. Okay, I'll do what I can with what I got. And then you get these terrible patents. Um, so, and there are, there are patent mills and, and, you know, where they just, they just putting you through the, cause they know most inventors will just file a patent. They'll never do anything else. Um, and, and that's sad. So, you know, really, if you can, um, we have plenty of our students to come on board having filed patents, but if you can't file a provisional, get the year to fish off the pier, see if there's any interest. It only costs you 75 bucks. Um, use our smart IP software to file it. But the software doesn't do you any good if you don't know how to license your product. If you don't know what a good sell sheet is, if you don't um, know how to do your research, if you don't know how to reach out to companies on LinkedIn on the phone, if you don't know how to have those conversations, filing a provisional and sitting on your hands, why bother? But And I under I understand why, because it gives you the warm and fuzzies. You're protected. I get it. It's human nature. And you're only out 75 bucks if you do that. But don't keep doing that and keep doing that. Um, if At the very least, I don't think it's a terrible thing because it gets inventors used to filing provisionals. And so that's one part of the process. So I don't think it's a bad part of the learning process. But filing provisionals without the without actually reaching out to license the products, what's the point of that? You know? Um, so if you guys want to type in um, what you thought of tonight, that would be great. If you could, guys could do me a favor, if you're not subscribed, click on the subscribe button. So I spent a whole hour answering your questions. This is the way you can kind of pay it back to me and InventRight. Um, click on subscribe. Um, click on like on this video. And when you're watching the InventRight channel, just click on like on all the videos you like. If you don't like it, just don't click on anything. And um, help us out because we, we got to 50,000 subscribers. We're looking to get to 80,000 subscribers. I would like to do it sometime soon. Tell your friends about the show if they like the show and tell them to click on subscribe. Um, it doesn't obligate you to anything. I mean, I'm subscribed to all sorts of YouTube shows. So um, it's not like you get spam from us or something if you click on subscribe. It's not a big deal, but it helps us tremendously. If you watch a lot of YouTube, you always hear people begging for that. Um, I don't usually even say it on the recorded shows that I do, but I do like to do this Q&A because I spent a whole hour helping you guys. So I'd really appreciate that. Um, if you, uh, I'll, I'm going to end the stream, but I'll leave the chat. So if you guys want to um, type into the chat any any kind words, if you enjoyed it so other people can see it, if they like the, the session, that would be great. All right. So uh, take care, everybody. Keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you next time. See you guys. Bye.